0: The word liturgy comes from two Greek words, meaning the work of the people. And originally it didn't have anything to do with church. It was a word that was used in the Greek city-states, and it referred to working bees. And it was uh, the work that people did voluntarily uh, for the privilege of belonging to the community. So if the streets needed cleaning or the the temple windows needed washing or whatever, uh, there was a liturgy, a gathering of people to clean up, to do the things, to keep the community clean and safe. And you did it for nothing because that was the the response for the the privilege of belonging to that community. So this morning, liturgy is going to be your work our work together uh, for the privilege of belonging to this community. I've got some things to say and you'll hear readings and things. Uh, It's your job to work with those uh, to take what you need from them and to weave them into something uh, that will be important for you. So you don't just sit and listen. (laughs) You do some work and there'll be an exam at the end of the service. (laughs) In 1956, in January, I arrived in New Zealand with my parents after five weeks of holiday on the high seas. Uh, And it was quite an interesting experience to have... uh, Well, you're fairly limited, you were in those days, with what you could do on a ship. But um, it was a, a nice relaxing time after all the upheaval of having to pack up and sell furniture and all the other things that my parents had to do before we, uh, we left to come to New Zealand. And it's interesting that, I don't know if you've noticed, but when you go on a, a long journey, there's a point on the journey where you think less about where you've been and think more about where you're going. And I think from, for us, that was the Panama Canal. Once you came through the canal, it was like a curtain coming down, and you were further, even further away uh, from where you had come from. We arrived in New Zealand, which was a, uh, a strange new country. Uh, we had to get used to all these people that spoke with funny accents. <laughs> and uh, I had to get used to a new school, And my father had to get used to a new place to work and my mother uh, had to get used to she found a job too uh, as a way of becoming part of the community. We didn't know anybody else except one family. Uh, And my father and the husband and the family had gone to school together and uh, the the wife and the family, her parents had been our neighbours in Scotland. So we kind of gravitated towards them and we for the first year or so we had a weekly ritual (coughs) which was on Saturday night uh, we went to the pictures at 8 o'clock and we'd meet them there and after the pictures we'd go back to their place. They had an old car, it was a 1926 Graham Page uh, which was known as a maggot wagon and we would go back to their place and have supper and then the stories would begin. Uh, you remember when and, oh yes, and who was that that did And, and I learned all sorts of interesting things about my own family uh, and about uh, the town that we had lived in. Uh, and it was a pretty special time. Uh, it was people we knew and you could be at ease with. And then we... Uh, Uh, we were taken home in the maggot wagon. Uh, And usually by that time, it was about one o'clock in the morning. So Sunday mornings were for sleeping in and having a late uh, breakfast or early lunch and uh, to get through that. And then, midday, Sunday, 3ZB, the request session. (laughs) People remember the request sessions on 3ZB? Or before ZB or whatever? Uh, And... uh, so I used to listening to that, and then at one o'clock, they had a kind of change on the request station. They moved into, for about 15 minutes, uh, some classical music, classical requests. And I remember one Sunday being stopped, literally in my tracks, uh, by a piece of music uh, that really hit me, and it moved me, and I uh, had to work out what this was all about. Uh, and we're going to listen to that piece of music now. I didn't quite understand what was going on inside me, but that piece of music touched me emotionally uh, at a time when uh, I was facing change. Uh, we travelled halfway across the world. Uh, we were in a, a new city. We'd lived in a town before. Uh, we had sunshine. <laughs> uh, and uh, there was all that, but there was also the missing of, of friends and relations. Uh, and somehow that piece of music spoke to that. I would no idea what it was. Uh, and I listened... Uh, more carefully uh, over the next few months because it would I knew it would come up again. Uh, and that's when I discovered it was from an opera by Verdi called Nabucco uh, and was entitled The Chorus of Hebrew Slaves. And I thought, oh, I know about that. I learned about the Hebrew slaves when, uh, when I was at primary school in Scotland uh, when they were all in Egypt and uh, uh, Moses and the burning bush and having to make bricks without straw and all that stuff. Uh, I knew about the Hebrew slaves. That's what that was about. It was another 10 years uh, when I was in the theological hall and doing biblical studies that I discovered I had been thinking on the wrong story. Uh, and that it actually wasn't about the Hebrew slaves uh, in, uh, in Egypt. It was about the Hebrew exiles in Babylon, nearly 800, 900 years later. Uh, and it's, that's an interesting story in itself, that in 597 BC and then again in 586, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, uh, marched into uh, Israel and Jerusalem and, uh, and took off people as hostages. He was a bit brassed off that in all the turmoil of that Middle Eastern uh, political system, uh, Israel was getting too friendly with Egypt uh, and was posing a threat to him. So he took some, uh, in 597, he took some people off as hostages uh, into Babylon. Uh, Israel didn't learn a lesson, and Nebuchadnezzar came back in 586 uh, and... uh, really did the men then. He took all the the cream of the society, all the leadership and people who had uh, experience and skills off into into exile in Babylon. And then he proceeded to uh, pull down the temple and the infrastructure of Jerusalem and left the ordinary people with nothing but a pile of rubble. The ones who went off into Babylon is the ones that we hear most about. We don't hear much about uh, the poor people that were left behind. Uh, And in the title of that piece from Nabucco, it's called The The Chorus of Hebrew Slaves. And they weren't slaves in Babylon. They were hostages. They were in exile. And Nebuchadnezzar knew what he was doing, he took people who could be part of the community there, uh, who had skills to build up uh, his community. And uh, so they, they gradually became part of the community. But it wasn't easy. Uh, they had to get used to people with funny accents too. And uh, they also had to get used to the fact that they were now a minority group in uh, in in Babylon that uh, from being the, the superior God's chosen people in Israel there were now uh, a little group of exiles uh, so th- I guess they had mixed feelings because they were finding finding work and some satisfaction but also uh, they were uh, longing for Jerusalem uh, and the temple uh, and and People that they'd left behind. And that's expressed in one of the Psalms, which Kathy's going to read for us now, Psalm 137.
1: (coughs) You'll know it, I'm sure. By the rivers of Babylon we sat down. There we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows nearby we hung up our harps. Those who captured us told us to sing. They told us to entertain them. Sing to us a a song about Zion. How can we sing a song to the Lord in a foreign land? May I never be able to play the harp again if I forget you, Jerusalem. May I never be able to sing again if I do not remember you, if I do not think of you as my greatest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did the day Jerusalem was captured. Remember how they kept saying, tear it down to the ground. Babylon, you will be destroyed. Happy are those who pay you back for what you have done to us and who take your babies and smash them against a rock.
0: Some pretty deep feelings in there. These exiles who were longing for their homeland and who were bitter at those who had pulled the place down and wanted vengeance. And as a question comes up in there, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? So how indeed were they going to be uh, a people in in Babylon. Things begin slowly. You know, they don't just drop out of the air. And what I suspect happened was something similar to what happened with our family when we arrived in Christchurch. And we used to have our our weekly session at the pictures and supper afterwards. They got together. They told the stories. And they had a damn good moan about what was happening to them. They told the stories not just about themselves, but they began to tell the stories of the past, the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, uh, stories of Moses. They went back through the old myths and legends and histories uh, to give themselves uh, a base, because the the, the thing that was at risk for them was their sense of identity. How were they going to be uh, the people that they thought they were called to be in the midst of all this change that was going on? They did several things. One was that they actually became part of the community. They participated in the life of the city. Uh, They were entrepreneurial. They used the skills to do business and build and create and all these other things. But they also took time to be themselves and with those who knew what it was like. They would gather uh, to tell the stories that I've just outlined. Those gatherings over time expanded and became the synagogue. They no no longer had a temple. I mean, the temple wasn't even there, uh, which had been the center of their worship. And so in exile, they had to create a new way of worshiping. And they moved from being people whose lives and religious life were centered in sacrifice uh, to people whose lives were centred around story. They became the people of the book. uh, And they gathered the stories and collected them. And they did that on a special day. They called it Sabbath. Sabbath uh, was the day when they didn't do what others might expect them to do. They took time off. They met in the synagogue, they told the stories, they prayed, they listened. Then they went and they ate. They looked after the relationships of the group. They formed themselves, not into a ghetto, but into a, I guess the the modern version would be, a big support group, where they were cared for by people who understood who they were and where they could care for others and where they could be what they believed themselves to be called to be. It was much later uh, that Paul picked up the same theme because it was the start of a a new way of looking at themselves as a community of faith. Doug is going to read for us from Romans.
1: Be under obligation to no one. The, The only obligation you have is to love one another. Whoever does this has obeyed the law, the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not commit murder, do not steal, do not desire what belongs to someone else. All these and any others besides are summed up in the one command. Love your neighbour as you love yourself. If you love someone, you will never do them wrong. To love, then, is to obey the whole law.
0: Whenever we face change and major change, we need others. It's very difficult to deal with major change on your own. And Christian communities are the places that help us or should help us uh, to deal with all that happens to us as we face change. Communities that care for one another, uh, communities that accept us, communities that are prepared to recognize and appreciate difference. Uh, who wants to just belong to a We Love Morning Club When this afternoon and evening? I want to end by reading you something from a man called Norman Shanks, who was a member of the Iona community off the west coast of Scotland. And he's talking particularly about the church and facing change. The church vocation in each and every locality is to be a worshipping, healing, learning, serving community, faithfully living by the values of the kingdom modeling and embodying a countercultural vision, looking and reaching out beyond itself with a wider vision to discover the light and love of God, to engage with the, with the life of the world, standing up and speaking out against all that diminishes and disempowers humanity. In so doing, it will dream, and explore. It will be open, flexible and ready to take risks. It will be generous, hospitable and ready to celebrate. It will not be a ghetto but keen to operate and engage. It will be a transforming community, influencing others for good and being transformed itself in the process. It will be resilient and persistent, however hard the way, and it will be marked by joy and an eagerness to celebrate. Amen.